This is Heather Vickery with the Brave Files podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 154, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring Movie Review. McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You're going to find us on Twitter at C McBride for me and at Amaron underscore DM for Derek. And PopGoesYourWorld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, how are you, my friend? And what is new in the world of pop culture for you? Hey, Chris. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Uh, not a whole lot going on in my life in the way of pop culture. Um, the this is more of a sports and a pop culture thing, but mm-hmm. since our last episode, hockey has awarded the Stanley Cup championship for 2020, the COVID bubble year, th- to the Tampa Bay Lightning. So I want to say congratulations to the Tampa Bay Lightning. Ooh. They're uh, they're not my favorite team in the world, mainly because they're constantly competing with my Boston Bruins and the the hometown favorite Toronto Maple Leafs. But uh, their team is fantastic. They mm-hmm. deserve this win, and uh, they worked hard. And um, yeah, it's it's it was a, a, a Stanley Cup championship playoff race like none we've ever seen before and hopefully none like we'll ever see again. Uh, but what was really strange is the fact that the championship ended in towards the end of September, whereas this is usually the time of year when the new season's just starting. We usually have some preseason games in September. And by like we're recording this on October 1st, usually around October yep, 1st, starts up. you have the home openers yeah. at the beginning of the season for all the teams. So I think this is going to be a really strange couple of months for me because I don't really follow any other professional sports except hockey. And so this time of year for me is like, you know, it's like Christmas. I'm like so happy. Hockey is back. And here it is. The opposite. Hockey is done. So. <laughs> When's the next season going to start? Have they announced oh, that? I don't know. That's that's it's still all up in Weird. the air. But oh. uh, I mean, normally the Stanley Cup championship is awarded in mid June, early to mid June, and then the the preseason games start in September. So that's about a three month break. So if we sort of use that example, it would be around Christmas ish. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll Might see. be a we'll, Christmas we'll gift for you. Oh man, yeah, that would be great. It certainly would be. So, yeah. so that happened, and then yes. outside of uh, pop culture, just in general, again with the the seasons changing, uh, as I mentioned on the the show a few times in the past, I have a swimming pool in my backyard, yes. which we uh, put in a few years ago, and believe me, it was a it was a godsend this summer with quarantine happening. Uh, you know, we we're very fortunate to to have this pool. Again, end of September, we had to close the pool this week, and it was uh, a very sad day, but uh, we couldn't have timed it any better. We had a beautiful weekend to enjoy mm-hmm. the pool for one last weekend, and then we closed it on the Monday. And on Tuesday, we had freezing rain, hail. So <laughs> there you go, you good know, timing. Right on time, timed it perfectly. Nice. So uh, you know, now I'm now I'm counting the days until uh, spring when we can open up this pool again. So so those were sort of the two big things in my life. Now I do want to say there was one other fairly significant event that happened in your life, and that was. Chris celebrated a birthday. Ooh, so, I did. Congratulations. Yes. Happy birthday. Um, you know, Thank you. You made it one more year. Yep. So, uh, you know, I think th- it's funny because 
I'm uh, so many of my very, very close friends have birthdays in September. Mm-hmm. Um, and we joke about how, oh, well, you know, we're all Virgos. We're all the same personality type. And, and it's kind of funny and it's kind of true at the same time that so many uh, of my close friends that I've, I've had long lasting friendships with are uh, were born around the same time of year as me. So, I mean, our birthdays are only two weeks apart. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I think that just uh, is, you know, one more reason why we're such good friends is, uh, you know, we're, if you believe in that kind of thing, mm-hmm. we're both Virgos. Yeah, so, there you go. Anyway, congratulations. Thank you. Birthdays. I appreciate Over it. Over you, Chris, what has happened in your life? This <clears throat> my, wife, my wife and kids were actually away this past weekend. It wasn't for my birthday. So what they didn't look like they left, and let, left me alone. I had to stay home and I had to work on a presentation for work. Um, but I had a little bit of free time at night. So what I did was I went back and watched some old episodes of none other than WKRP in Cincinnati. Nice. Man, oh man. <clears throat> I've mentioned before, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I watched a couple episodes. I watched a two-part episode from season one where Johnny gets a job in California, so he moves away. And then the second part of that episode when he comes back. But this guy, Doug Winner, had taken over his job, but he was taking cocaine as Paola. Do you remember that episode? He was playing. I don't remember the show very well. The only two part I remember was where, uh, the sleazy photographer took nude pictures of Lonnie Anderson while she was changing. Yes. And I believe that that was Doug Weiner. That actually was the the actor that played the role of the sleazy photographer who was in our Fletch episode last week. Um, but in this one, this guy was taking this Paola cause he kept playing this song over and over. It was, the song was nowhere banned by the sound tastics. I don't know if it was a real song or not, but the other episode that I watched was from season three and it was one where Andy's sister comes to town. And so he sets her up on a date with Johnny, but then she comes to the station early and she ends up going out with Venus. Oh yes. I I do remember that. Which would have been very controversial at the time because of. The sister was white and and Venus Flytrap being a black guy. It's it's all about race. And yeah. and it was really good. But, you know, just as relevant today as it was when it came out back in 81. You know, yeah. like as much as things change, they just stay the same. And so as much as I was thrilled to be able to watch WKRP, one of my favorite shows of all time, it was a little disheartening too in, in some ways. So anyway, that was mine. Now, I like old TV shows because I'm old and I just had a birthday, which makes me even older. And that also makes me an old lame dad. So here's your dad joke of the week. I figured since we're doing Lord of the Rings, I'd make it Hobbit related. This oh boy. Week. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I have I have a clean one and I have a dirty one. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so the, the clean dad joke. Derek, why is it impossible to enter Sauron's lair? I have no idea. Because no matter how many you open, there's always one more door. Okay. So you, the, know, you know, instead of the wah, wah, I think you need to have that ba-dum, boom. Yes. Yeah. Like that, exactly. that was more of one where you need the snare drum. So. I'll, have to, I'll have to look into our bag of tricks. I'll, I'll sure. have to ask or our... Give it both. I mean, it probably deserved yeah. both. I'll ask our producer to look into that and we'll see what he can come up with. Okay, now I have a, a dirty joke, Okay. What was the name of the Hobbit adult film star? I have, I, I don't know if I want to know the answer <laughs> to this. I, I don't know. D- Baggins. <laughs> okay, that was pretty funny. Oh, yes, he admit, liked that it. That was pretty he good. He liked it. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna have to share that with some of my Dungeons and Dragons friends. They're, they're like that. 
That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> a little Canadian show called Shit's Creek. You can say Shit's Creek, but you can't say Wow, you are really dating yourself here, bud. Shit's Creek is awesome as What are you talking about? Have you not seen Ryan Reynolds' film career? Apparently my son has no soul. Just You're not recording this, are you? No, no, never. Like, that's that's criminal. I know. <laughs> we basically have the same bone structure. From the waist up, I presume. Most people won't question it. It's all ball bearings now. Okay, so when you first nominated this movie uh, on last week's podcast, I mentioned that I had actually seen it before. And I did. I went to see this movie back when it first came out in the theater. But I gotta be honest... I didn't remember all that much about it. I went, I went to the movie with a bunch of people that I worked with at the bar at the time. And I don't know if we just weren't paying all that much attention or whatever it was, but I, I just, I don't really remember all that much about this. Except the only thing I do remember was it was really long. Like so long, in fact, there was an intermission halfway through it. I remember that for some reason. But uh, now I also should mention I did read the books as a kid as I think, you know, a lot of us did. Um, and I also read this, the first book, anyway, with my oldest son a few years ago. Uh, it took us, like, forever to get through it because we'd only read, like, a little bit each night before bed, and it's a really long book. So right. when you mentioned that you wanted to do this, I was all gung-ho, really, really ready to go. I just I couldn't wait to go back and watch this thing, you know, because for me, it kind of felt like it would be, like, for the first time. And like I say, the one thing I remember about it was just the length. And it actually took me three sittings to get through it this week. It, it's been a bit of a crazy week. So I think just finding the time to fit the movie in, you know, it was it was difficult. So it took three sittings for me to get through. So it's it's long. Now, you also mentioned something about trying to watch the extended version. Uh, what's that, like six hours long? Yeah, I, I, honestly, I... So I have the Fellowship of the... Uh, well, I have all three of the movies on, on DVD. I got them. They put out like these super duper deluxe multi-disc sets as they came onto home video. And I believe the versions that are in each of these box sets are the extended versions. Uh, I, I didn't have a chance to dig into all the discs this week because I didn't want to overwhelm myself with behind the scenes stuff. Um, but I'm fairly confident that the one that I watched this week was the the extended director's cut version. And uh, yeah, I think think it ran about three hours it certainly felt like it ran like you i had to break it up over two nights mm -hmm. but as you mentioned there is a natural break in the in the story both in the book and in the movie there's like you know it's specifically like two sections so knowing that i i, I planned that when i mapped it out for for re same reasons as you i had a, i had a busy week and i i didn't think i was going to be able to sit through a three-hour movie in one sitting which i really dislike breaking up a movie like that but yeah having seen it before and knowing that this natural break was already in the storytelling, I, I didn't really have, have that big an issue with it. Funny enough, you know, the studio actually talked about doing one movie for the trilogy. And then they said, well, maybe we'll just do it in two movies. How do you do it in two movies? It's three books, you know, and they're each really long. It makes sense to do three movies, one, you know, for each book. What I think was a dumb idea was then when they went back and they, they did The Hobbit, which is a much smaller book, and they made that into three movies. Like, that was about one thing and one thing only, and that's money. Yeah, honestly, I... So, funny enough, I had never read The Hobbit, and I had never read Lord of the Rings prior to these movies coming out. But being a, a big fan of fantasy fiction, being a big fan of the swords and sorcery genre, um, and being a huge Dungeons & Dragons nerd, like, this is right in my wheelhouse. And I, I really always felt like I was... Um, 
missing missing a, an important quiver from my fantasy uh, uh an important arrow out of my fantasy quiver here so when the movies were slated to come out and they said yes they're going to be coming out and they're going to make them these grand scale epics i went out and i bought the three books in the lord of the rings trilogy i actually already owned a copy of the hobbit that i had picked up years earlier and just never read but i thought i'll, I'll worry about that later and i actually couldn't really get into the Lord of the Rings, the first book, I found it was just very difficult, very dense. Um, one of the things I always have challenge with when you're reading a fantasy novel is they tend to make up a lot of um, fantasy places and countries and the names are always like unusual. You know, you never just have like, here's Jim the Sorcerer and uh, Frank the Fighter. They always have these really bizarre names where they like to throw in letters that you don't see very often. A lot of J's, a lot of X's and things like that. So I just I had a really, really difficult time getting into the book. And I I, I only got I think it's about a 500 page book. I think I had about 100 pages in and I, I was like, I give up. Then I saw the movie and loved it and went back and read the book, like picked up the book again and started at the beginning. And this time I was able to get through it. I knew how to pronounce all the names because I had heard them in the movie. I had a better concept of what was going on. Uh, I could picture the places a little bit better because I had seen them in the movie and that really helped. And then I knew I had a full calendar year until the next movie came out. And so I, I plowed through the novels, books two and three that summer. So by the time the second movie was released, I'd finished the whole trilogy and I loved it. And and I felt that really helped. So not long after that, they said, well, we're going to go back and do these Hobbit movies. And I thought, perfect, I'll go back and read The Hobbit. And again, I it, it's it's a much shorter book and it's written. It, it almost feels like it's, it's written for a, um, a younger audience. Yeah, like I know uh, my, my friend teaches, I think grade five or grade six, and he does the Hobbit in his curriculum every year. He feels it's a good age for the students to read. Mm -hmm. The book's not that complicated. It's not that long. So I thought, Oh, well this will be like, I've already had my gigantic feast with the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to go back and have the starter salad. And that was sort of how I found that the Hobbit was, was I enjoyed it. It felt a lot lighter. It felt a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. And then when they're like, we're going to make the movie into two movies, I was like, well, the novel's two parts. That makes sense to me. And then they're like, no, no, now we're going to make it three movies. I'm no. like, I'm out. Yeah. So I refused to see them. I didn't see any of the Hobbit movies. I didn't buy any of the DVDs. I haven't seen them when they've been on, on cable. I have not seen the Hobbit movies mm -hmm. at all. And really, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. And from the people I know that got heavily invested in it, there was a lot of disappointment. So mm. anyway, that's real strong tangent on where we're going tonight. That's okay. I have a lot to unpack in what you just said. How the heck can you be so into D&D &D and not have read Tolkien? I don't get it. That's weird to me. It seems it was, odd. It was just too, I, again, I couldn't wrap my brain around it. I, I, but it's, I had just a very difficult time following through. I think it was just the style of his writing was very different. Like the, the, the novels that I've read a lot of the novels I read, especially at that time, were novels based on the Dungeons and Dragons property. They were put out by Wizards of the Coast and TSR, which is the group that that made Dungeons and Dragons. And they always described how their books were written with the sort of PG-13 rating. And they're very light and they're very fluffy. And I used to read one a week. Like, you could get through it in a week. It was very easy read. And then I went to Tolkien and it's like, holy crap, this is like going from middle school to university overnight. It was just, the, the writing was such a different style. I just, I couldn't couldn't get into it. I found that The Fellowship of the Ring was 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 a tough read, but I I found that the, the Two Towers was like an uphill climb 
when I read it. It was really tough. But let's come back to D&D in a bit. I'm gonna, I want to come back to that. But uh, I want to get into this movie. So my only experience with watching, you know, any movie version of Lord of the Rings, because I read the Lord of the Rings uh, books when I was young, when I was a kid. And my only experience was, I think I told this story before, when I was when I was young, I was like maybe 11 years old, I would go up to my my grandparents' cottage and they had a like a video disc machine. And video discs were kind of a big thing at, for a while there. And there was um, a store in town where you can go in and rent video discs. <clears throat> and I remember I went and rented the 1978 Ralph Bakshi version of Lord of the Rings, the one with the rotoscoping. So that's the rotoscope yeah. one, yeah. And I remember I just thought it was dumb and I didn't like it. And I was really disappointed because I really did like those books. But I will tell you, all that being said, I'll tell you what, you made me go back and watch this movie. It was fantastic. Oh man, this is a really, really well done piece of filmmaking. And I was a bit surprised because as far as I'm concerned, going into it, I had, there was two strikes against it. At least what, you know, what I consider to be two strikes. Number one, it's long, as we mentioned. And number two, it's got a lot of CGI in it. And as an old school Gen Xer, I generally hate CGI in movies, you know, but we'll come back to that maybe in a bit later. But this movie was fantastic. And it, not just because I'm a nerd, you know, I, yeah, this was really good. So this is this is going to be really a, a monumental episode because I didn't like it that much. Oh, wow. Interesting. I mean, OK, let, let me let me sort of put this into context. Why did you make so, me watch it then? So if you recall at the end of last week's episode, I said, I want to watch an epic. And I even said, like, I considered nominating The Godfather. Like, I wanted to watch a really heavy, epic movie, something that has this long running time, that has this huge place in movie history, something that if you called it an epic, nobody would disagree. And so that that brought the list down very quickly to a few choices. And, you know, I wanted to pick something that was from the 2000s onward. And I hadn't seen this Lord of the Rings in a long time. But I was sort of aching to get back to it because I, I know how much stuff is there. And I remember how much I enjoyed watching them when they first came out. And I thought, perfect. I'll nominate for the podcast. We'll do the first one for a review. And then next week, I can go back and watch parts two and part three. And so when I watched it this week, I, I, I maybe I just had my expectations were so high in my mind, in my memory. It was so good that it didn't live up to that expectation. It's almost like what's happens now is you get this nostalgia factor where people say, Oh, I'm going to go back and watch my favorite cartoon from when I was eight years old. It's on DVD. Now it's on YouTube. Now it's on Amazon. It's on Netflix. And you go back and watch it and you're like, Oh my God, these are awful. But in your mind, they have such a strong place in your memory that the nostalgia almost blinds it to, to the reality of how bad it was or, or you're, life experience now looking at it you go oh my god these these are you know these would have been great as an eight-year-old but these are terrible now i think it's sort of that same idea where in my mind given what my my passions are at the time the fellowship of the ring was like oh my god this is everything we've been waiting for it's like when iron man was first came out it's like this is the comic book movie i've always waited for fellowship came out i'm like it's fantastic it's awesome i saw it a few times in the theater i've got all the dvds but I hadn't seen it in almost 20 years. And when I went back, I just, I didn't feel it lived up to what I remembered. I felt that it was too long, too slow. It, re it reminded me of all those things I disliked about the book the very first time I went through it. I just found it was like, where is this going? Why isn't anything happening? Oh my God, this is slow. Like you could cut half this stuff out. Like 
I just, I, I really felt disappointed with what I got. But at the same time, I can still appreciate what it is from its, from its craft, right? It's filmmaking. Like Peter Jackson did an exceptional job, deserved his Oscar, deserved the, you know, like th- these movies stand the test of time. Like they're, they're timeless in the sense that they're going to be around forever. You talk about things like the Star Wars movies, you talk about things like the, the Lord of the Rings movies. Like these are important franchises in film. They, they were important at the time and they're going to be around forever. And there's a lot of inventive and creative things that, that they were able to do in this movie that hadn't been done before. And I can appreciate all of that. But unfortunately, I didn't feel entertained when I watched it. And I kind of afterwards really was disappointed by that. So you and I have very differing views of nostalgia, my friend, because I've gone back in the past and watched stuff that I watched when I was, you know, an eight-year-old kid or a seven-year-old kid. Um, The one that comes to mind is Land of the Lost. I went back and watched, I got the DVDs of it. And I mean, like, we want to talk about nostalgia. Like, that's nostalgia for me. And it was like, really, it's it's not very good. I think I told you my wife watched it with my son and she's like, "This this is crap. This show is terrible. And I just love it all. I just eat it all up. Like, I just think it's great. Even when I go back and, yeah, there's a difference between eight-year-old me and, you know, you know the old me now. But I, there's something also that, that I, I yearn for. I think that's the, the, the part of nostalgia that I like so much. So when I go back and watch it, I don't know. It just it feels like a comfortable thing. Um, but the, what, a couple of things that you mentioned um, about Peter Jackson. We'll start with him. Okay. Like he was the right choice to do this movie and wow and if you think about it coming into it he wasn't really a huge movie director now he did no, do, he did a movie that was called heavenly creatures have you ever heard of it you ever seen it oh yeah i've seen it it's great i saw it back in the 90s when it first came out i saw it on video it was outstanding and for me when i saw that it set him apart as what i felt was one of the best directors in the world i thought it was that good and but he wasn't really like a household name when lord of the rings came out he is now, obviously. Um, although I will say I didn't like the King Kong remake. No, I the, wasn't a big fan of it either. The 1933 film is the definitive King Kong. They remade it again in like 76. Um, and then again, Peter Jackson did it in 2004, whenever it was. But I think they just need to leave it alone. You know, all the CGI in the world will never make up for the movie magic of the 1933 version. I think Hollywood just needs to give it up when it comes to King Kong. But Peter Jackson, one hell of a director here. The, the thing is too, like there's so many things that he had to juggle and get just right. If you think about it, he had to be true to the source material. His casting had to be good. He had to get good performances out of his cast and he had to be visually appealing, you know, without being cheesy, Yeah, you know. Now it starts off with, with this elaborate backstory, which is not in the beginning of the book. But the thing is, Tolkien kind of weaves the backstory into his storytelling, but it actually works really well for movie audiences to kind of get it all up front, you know? Yeah. So I had no problem with, you know, Jackson doing it that way. But just a couple of things about the movie in general I want to talk about. So first of all, The Hobbits. So you've got Elijah Wood and Dominic Monaghan, Billy Boyd and Sean Astin. Sean Astin was the only one that had done anything before this, really. You know, I mean, well, was, Elijah Wood had a pretty reasonable resume, but I think a lot of his stuff was more considered like art house independent style movies. So he maybe wasn't the household name, but I think I think he had enough uh, familiarity with a movie going audience that when they saw him in the trailer, they're like, oh, yeah, I know who that guy is. Yeah. I mean, he didn't do anything mainstream like Sean Astin. I mean, Sean Astin was Mikey and the Goonies. 
you know, and his parents were John Aston and Patty Duke for crying out loud. So, um, but I mean, the others were unknowns, but the thing was, you know, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking they were cast because they kind of look like hobbits. You know, like like they're kind of weird looking guys. Sure. They, they all kind of got this stunted growth thing going on. I don't know. There's just something weird looking about them, except for Sean Astin, I would say, because he doesn't look like he's missed too many meals, you know, but... Uh, no, and I don't know if you... Like, he was in the season two of Stranger Things, yes. and he's definitely uh, put on a few pounds yeah. as he's aged, as so many of us have, so... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah not that I should talk. hold that against him. Yeah, people have said, I look like Sean Astin. I get that all the time, so I mean... I, I don't know if that's a compliment, but... Yeah, exactly. So, so the Hobbits, I thought, were kind of good. The sets in this movie. The Hobbit hole, it just looks so good. The yeah. exterior shots. Like, I, you actually believe that Middle Earth is a real place. They shot it in New Zealand, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things I remember, uh, again, so Peter Jackson was sort of right in the right place at the right time when he made these movies and understood the power of the internet and technology. And they basically did video logs of everything behind the scenes every single day when they were shooting these movies, which they shot consecutively, I think over a three or four year period. Uh, Like they they just went from one movie to the next movie to the next movie. Nobody went home during in between them or anything because they were these these this huge epics. And it was like there is so much behind the scenes material on the on these three movies that anything and everything you could ever want to know about how things were done, why things were done, the uh, you know, it's there. And one of the things I remember seeing again, it's been a long time since I've watched all these special features, but they were saying that when they uh, chose to do it in New Zealand, they got huge support from the New Zealand government. They were able to actually build sets like like the um, the Shire with all the hobbit holes like they really built exteriors of those are all real. And um, one of the things that they they sort of the bargains they made with the New Zealand government was they said, once we're done filming this and they anticipated this would be this huge international hit, we will upkeep or you guys in the, in the in New Zealand can upkeep this and it'll be like a tourist attraction. And so they actually the New Zealand government designated a minister of Lord of the Rings temporarily mm-hmm. while the movies were on to spearhead all of the travel and tourism and all that stuff that would that would spawn out of these movies so that there would be a thriving industry after the movies were done to so people could take trips to New Zealand and visit these places in real life that were shown in the movie. So like, yeah, in the movie, like you, you were talking about special effects, practical effects versus CGI. So many of the locations are actual locations in New Zealand that I believe still, well, I mean, not in the current climate, but you could still go and visit them and they still have a thriving uh, travel and tourism industry around the whole Lord of the Rings style vacations where you can go and see all this stuff. So yeah, I, I think that was a wise move on everybody's part. It's the gift that keeps on giving. No question. I mean, those politicians were smart to, to look, to see that because it just, yeah, it's a tourism, tourism industry now. And it, you know, then they could kind of market New Zealand as a place to kind of come. You know, the, the movie looks fantastic. No question. Oh, absolutely. And no doubt about that. I got no strikes against that whatsoever. Other thing I really like was the casting. I thought, I thought they did a really good so job, good. starting with the Hobbits, like I mentioned, but Ian McKellen as Gandalf, Christopher yeah. Lee, like the like legendary Christopher Lee, you got Sean uh, Bean as Boromir, and Gimli, John Riz davies Sala from Raiders. Like, yeah. Oh, like, the one thing I always like looking at, though, are some of the actors that were almost cast in movies. It's always fun to try to imagine them in the roles, and a couple yeah, yeah. of almosts for Lord of the Rings, Sean Connery as Gandalf. 
Oh, I had heard that. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he didn't really understand the script, so he just wasn't I, into it. I heard a thing. I heard a thing about Sean Connery where mm-hmm. they they said to him, "We want you to be Neo in the Matrix." He's like, "I don't understand this script." We want you to be Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. He's like, I don't understand this script. Both of those movies went on to be huge hits. Then the next thing they brought him was uh, a comic book adaptation called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, written by Alan, <laughs> who did Watchmen. And he's terrible. like, I don't understand this one either, but I'm not passing on a third one. I'm taking it. And then the movie adaptation was terrible. It was awful. And he's like, that's it. I'm out. He doesn't, understand, understand, he doesn't understand the script, but then he goes and stars in a movie. Like, what was the one where he was wearing, like, the, the, the it was, I don't know, it was kind of like this onesie thing and he's showed all his chest hair and he's got like the oh long... yeah uh, station alpha or something nah, or... i don't know just, just, yeah. don't know. um remember. russell crowe as boromir was considered well, that could have worked yeah. but now this would have been right after russell crowe gladiator so i think it might have i think that's why he might turned have taken it down. too much spotlight off of the other characters because boromir is not supposed to be the main guy exactly and i think that's why he turned it down because he had just done gladiators so he was like oh, i've kind of done that sword play kind of thing yeah um nicholas cage as Aragorn. Oh, jeez. That would have been tough to watch. That Although, would have been... in all fairness, Nicolas Cage is Academy Award winner. Mm-hmm. So, on rare occasions, he can really bring it. So, you never know. Maybe maybe he could have brought something to that role that nobody expected. Jake Gyllenhaal as Frodo. Well, Jake Gyllenhaal looks a lot like Elijah Wood. So, I, I don't really think there would have been much difference in that. Apparently, his audition was so horrifically bad that they just, they couldn't give him the part. Like he just bombed it. But, uh, so one thing I was was going to ask you, um, how do they shoot the actors in this movie to make them all look different sizes? Because you got Gandalf, who's like a really tall man, and he's interacting with the hobbits. They're all little, like way smaller than, than the actors are yeah. that are even playing them. And the dwarves kind of in between, you know? Like yeah, CGI, so, obviously, right? Again, after watching so many of the behind the scenes things. And See, I haven't seen lot, any so of those things. So. I, I think I think I remember a lot of this stuff pretty accurately. So it was a combination of things. The first and the easiest thing was anytime things were being done on the scale of a normal sized, average sized man, like with with Ian McKellen as Gandalf, there were uh, body doubles for the for the for the hobbits, for the main four hobbits. There were actors that were hired who are smaller stature, who were stand ins. And they would wear prosthetics and makeups and whatever else. So, And in most of those scenes, you don't usually see the tall people and the short people facing the camera together at the same time. It's a lot of over-the-shoulder shots. And that's how they sort of tricked you. In other cases, it was a forced perspective where you had the correct actors, but the, they used the camera. They tricked the camera by having one actor more in-frame or, or you know, upstage, downstage kind of thing where... It, it looks like they're only a few feet apart when in actuality they might be 10 or 12 feet apart to force that perspective. And then I think in some cases it was just you shot them separately and you use the computer to splice it together. So I think it was a combination of all of those things depending on what what it called for, what was easiest. And, and again, with some of the sets, they had to build them multiple times at different scales depending right. on what they were trying to accomplish. So I think like the Hobbit Holes... Um, they would have had to do it there for sure. Yeah, like, I mean, there are some scenes with um, Ian Holm and Elijah Wood where, you know, it's their home, it's Bag End, and so it's size appropriate for them. Well, when it's just them in the scene, they're in a set that is built to normal scale size, but then the scenes where Gandalf has to interact, 
they've rebuilt the same set at a smaller scale so that when Gandalf walks in, he bumps his head exactly. and he has to scooch down. Right. So again, I think it's it's a combination of practical effects by building multiple sets and some CGI and some stand-in. Uh, you know, again, I don't know if stand-in is the right terminology because the people that did this that were the like the body doubles for the hobbits, it was the same, I believe, it was the same actors the entire run of the trilogy. So Frodo stand-in was Frodo stand-in for those whole three years. They worked just as hard and were in every scene just with just as much as Frodo, but you never actually saw their faces. Mm-hmm. No, whatever they did, I mean, it worked, you know. But anyway, as for the plot of the movie uh, itself, so you got this Sauron guy, and he used to be friends with Gandalf, and now he's turned to the dark side. And I'm thinking, like, you couldn't see this coming. His yeah. name is almost the same as the bad guy. It's uh, yeah, Sauron, yeah. Sauron. There's only like two letters away. Yeah, that, I think that was one of the things I had a hard time wrapping my head around when I was reading the novel the first time is I think I kept interchanging yeah. those characters and it was very confusing to me. But again, once I saw the movie and I understood, oh, they're different, but they are in allegiance with each other, that that certainly helped. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, on its face, the plot is very simple. Mm. It's, you know, it, 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 it's, it starts with these hobbits. So what we may or may not know is that this story picks up after the story of The Hobbit, where... Um, the 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 character of Bilbo has been on an adventure and he's found a magic ring that turns him invisible. That's all we. That's all you may know coming into this the first time, if you even know that. And he decides that he's going to leave the leave his home to go on an adventure. He's going to leave his leave the magic ring behind for his nephew, and away we go. And it starts off with a birthday party and all that jazz. And then um, eventually we learn not too long into the movie uh, Gandalf starts to suspect that the ring being a magic ring might actually have a dark sinister purpose to it and we find out that that is indeed the case and it's actually one of these rings of power that as you described at the beginning of, of the movie they have this narration they have this little flashback mm-hmm. uh, almost like and we've talked about this I use Raiders of the Lost Ark as an example of great filmmaking where in Raiders of the Lost Ark you have this excellent action sequence at the beginning to get everybody on board. And then you slow it down and you do a whole bunch of like narrative. Here's where we're going with the rest of the movie. And I think Peter Jackson borrowed that idea. Um, not that it's an original idea, but he gave us this, this scene of this epic battle and not that we actually see too much of the battle, but it sets the stage for there were these magic rings and so many were given to the men and so many were given to the elves and so many were given to the dwarves. And then there was this super duper awesome ring of power, the one ring to rule them all. So we already, as the audience, have this backstory that these magic rings are out there. So when we find out that this, you know, little bauble is the ring, or could be, we're on board. We know where this story's going. And then it's a movie about walking. And the hobbits have to walk the ring to the elves where they're like, we're going to bring it here because we think they can help us. And, of course, bad things happen along the way. And then they're like, no, we can't help you. And they've got to walk somewhere else. And, and you know, again, we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but not too much detail. You know, they eventually decide that this ring is too powerful for any one person to have. We've got to destroy the ring. And okay, let's walk some more. And away you go. And I mean, when you describe a movie like that to someone, they go, that movie sounds boring. <laughs> and certainly some parts of it are boring. There's a lot of walking and it's like, oh my God, just get where you're going already. And the book's like that too. But there are these fantastic sequences where there's some action, where there's some suspense, where there's some. Uh, interesting dialogue where like when you have the council where they all come together and decide like, well, you know, we have representative from all the races of the world. We have the elves and the dwarves and the men and the hobbit are all here. What are we going to do with this, this ring? And so you, you do have these important set piece sequences, but then you get these long travel sequences in between where you're like, 
are we there yet? Like, come on, the movie's 5,000 hours long. Like, let's <laughs> let's just fast forward through some of these parts. And I mean, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm obviously tongue in cheek. I, I mean, yeah, but they're yes, not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to take a bus, you know, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, but there is. And, and I mean, it's, um, I think that's what sort of got me on the rewatch is I, I know, and I've heard these jokes before about, oh my God, it's, it's this nine hour epic about walking, which yes, on its surface it is, but there is certainly more to enjoy than just, you know, the, the boring old walking sequences. There, def- there definitely is. And there is right when they, they go to leave. I like the scene when the, the two hobbits are just leaving the Shire and they run into like literally they run into Mary and Pippin who are yeah. stealing the food from Farmer Megan. Yeah. yeah. And, and they all go rolling down the hill. And then the thing is when they land at the bottom, you see the hobbit feet. Can we just talk about hobbit feet for a second? Hobbit feet are really, really gross. Hey, I mean, hey. I mean. Uh, watch, watch where you're going with this. Well, I mean. Feet are kind of gross to begin with, but hobbit feet are like the pulled pork of feet. I don't like pulled pork, Derek. I've taken a lot okay, of flack I'm like, for I, it. I'm not catching these. this reference yeah. here. So. I've taken a lot of flack for my dislike of pulled pork over the years, but I, I don't know. I think it's gross. But uh, anyway, so the hobbits end up on the road, and right away, Frodo remembers, Gandalf tells him, stay off the road. And so they hide, and a black rider comes along, and when it's leaning over, that the, the tree stump there and Frodo's hiding. I thought that scene was awesome. Yeah. You know, I I, it, I don't know. It, it, and then it just keeps going because they, they run away, but this thing chases them right up to the dock and then they get on this boat and the Black Rider obviously doesn't like water. At least that's the impression that, you know, you get because he backs away. And then they go to the town of Bree to the Prancing Pony and Frodo uses a fake name. He calls himself Mr. Underhill. And I just want to say, Last week on the podcast, we reviewed Fletch, Chevy Chase's movie from 85. Yep. And in that movie, there was a Mr. Underhill too. And I just loved it when, when Frodo walks up to the bar and the bartender says, what do you want? I, I was really hoping he'd just say, I'll have a Bloody Mary and a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich, please. <laughs> <laughs> he could like turn to Pippin and say, I love your body, Larry. I don't know. But I just I just thought Mr. Underhill, I was like, what a reference. We just did Fletch. Nice. So, nice. Uh, um, then he puts the ring on by accident and he disappears. And, and then this is where we start to see that Sauron knows when the ring is put on. Like he can sense it, you know. And the Black Riders, they can sense it too because they come into the inn and they go to stab the hobbits in their beds. But it turns out that they're pillows because Strider's yeah. got them the hell out of there. And then he says they're going to Rivendell to see the elves. But then they have to stop for the night. And it, yeah, there's lots of walking, but things are happening too, right? Cause, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, yeah, this this is a standard trope in fantasy literature is that, you know, the characters go, on, I, mean, I mean, most of the tropes originate with Tolkien. So the tropes are like, we're going to put our group of adventurers together. We're going to have our adventuring party. We're going to go on an epic quest and we're going to, it usually involves a fair amount of travel to far off places to find lost or forgotten treasures or to slay the monster that is, uh, you know, the sleeping dragon or whatever it may be. So I, I get it. And, and I mean, I, I keep poking fun at it mm-hmm. because it's, it's an easy, it's an easy target, but it is, this is one of the criticisms from people who genuinely disliked the movie was right. they felt, Oh, there's just so much walking, so much walking. And in a world where, it's a fantasy world that is is unlike the world we know. It doesn't take place on the Earth we know. It takes place in this Middle Earth. And they show you a map early in the movie to sort of demonstrate to you, like, things might look familiar, but we're actually 
in a fantasy world where place the places have names you never heard of and the the borders are different and the topical terrain is different. So I think part of the thing with a fantasy story, especially with a fantasy movie, is you kind of want to show that off a bit. Think of like with Star Wars. You know, they have they you know they they start off in Tatooine, the desert world. Then in the next movie they go to Hoth, where it's all icy and snowy, and then he goes to Dagobah, where it's all swampy, and then you know it's like. Uh, you can have your good story and that's all well and good, but it's always nice to show off a little bit of the background and the terrain. And I think that all the traveling emphasizes that, that this world is, is very different from the world we know and that there, it, it helps denote how far they've traveled as they start to see more mountains and more snow. And you realize this is no longer anywhere near the place where the movie began, where it was very green and very lush and you had all these farms. So I think it's, a, you know, the travel is an important part of it. Yeah, and, and it's funny because they don't travel at night, right? They got to stop. And and at one point they stop and then Frodo goes to sleep. And there's other idiot hobbits. They wake up and like they, they start a fire to make bacon. I think they mentioned tomatoes too. So basically they're risking their lives for a BLT, you know? Yeah. And and the Black Riders obviously see the fire, right? And they come to kill him. And Frodo gets stabbed with a, I think they call it a Mordor blade. But it, it doesn't kill him. It, it, it starts to turn him into what a Strider calls a wraith. And, and for me, this is where I start to agree with you. Like, I got a little confused at this part because of all the names and stuff. Everyone in this story seems to have two names. You got Black Riders or their Wraiths and Strider and Aragorn and Frodo and Mr. Underhill. So I feel like a lot of characters go by too many names. And especially when you start to get into these weird medieval names, it can be a little bit confusing. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, but it's like anything else. As you start to understand who these people are and what their the various names they go by, it starts to get easier, especially with a movie where I can see that it's Elijah Wood, the actor, playing this role, and he gives a different name. I get, oh, okay, that's the guy I know. Whereas when you're reading the book, you're like, oh, my God, who is this again? Oh, this was that guy. So, you, you know, I, I think you could start to understand why, why I was having so much trouble getting through the book until I had seen the movie and was better able to sort of match the names and the places with what I – remembered seeing on the screen. So my thanks to Peter Jackson for helping me overcome that obstacle. Oh, you know what I liked was the Predator Orc. That's what I call him. He was like the the one with the, like the black and the red on his face. He's like the big bad one. He had the braided hair. Yeah, he had like the white palm print over his Yeah, face. he looked like yeah. the alien in Predator. So that's what I thought. But uh, Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Arwen takes Frodo on her horse because he's dying at this point, right? And she's like a fast rider and yeah. the wraiths chase him. And I thought it was cool because they get to the river and you think they're afraid of the water, but they start to come across. And then she gets this huge wave to kind of come and sweep them. I, th- I thought it was a neat scene. I thought it was good. And then they meet Hugo Weaving, the guy from The Matrix. Yep. I was so hoping that he'd interrogate Frodo just like he did in The Matrix. Mr. Mm. Underhill, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Mr. Anderson thing. Yep. Um, nice. No, I thought it was interesting too. So Arwen and Aragorn are kind of, they're kind of a thing. You know, yeah. In in the extended version, you get a lot more scenes of them together, and you get like a couple of flashback scenes. I can't remember how many of those were in the the regular. Ver- Again, when you when you have a quote unquote director's cut, a lot of the stuff that goes that is taken out of the real movie and then is put back into a director's cut, you sort of understand why some of those scenes were taken out in the first place, especially when your movie's already running so long. And I felt that they they added a lot of that stuff back into the extended version and i don't really feel it added a lot they had enough in there the first time to get Mm. across that these two characters have a past they are not together right now but they still share feelings for each other 
And this is obviously going to be an important part of the story ongoing. And, and, and I'm good with that. That's all I needed at that point. So to get in the extended version, all these scenes where you have flashbacks and they're professing their love for each other. They're speaking Elvin to each other. I'm like, I get it. I'm yeah. already bored from the walking. Let's get past the kissing. <laughs> yeah, part. you didn't need that. Because I mean, get they, to the part where they start fighting with swords again. Like this movie's boring. They make it pretty clear because they, she says that in order for her to be with him, she'd have to give up her immortality. And I was thinking, because I always relate things to Gen X. It was like in Superman 2. Remember Superman had to give up his powers to be with Margot Kidder? And then that hillbilly beat the shit out of him in the diner? (laughs) Not like like Liv Tyler's in any danger of getting the shit kicked out of her by a hillbilly in a diner. But like, you know, it is what it is. But um, so they're all sitting around. You mentioned the scene when they form the Fellowship of the Ring. And I love Sean Bean talks about the great eye. And I was like, hey, that's a meme. That's the scene yeah. where he puts, puts his circle. Yeah. circle. One does not simply walk into Mordor. That's the meme. <laughs> yeah. One does not simply eat one piece of pie on Thanksgiving yeah. or whatever the meme is. Yeah. <laughs> that's but, how that's how you know you've you've embedded yourself in pop culture. Like that that is one of the all-time great memes. Oh, is, it's, it's, is Sean Bean with his fingers sort of like yeah. you know, almost like it it looks like he's playing the world's smallest violin. He's got his right. thumb and his fingers together and sort of got it. yeah, like everybody knows that. Once you you're like, oh my god. So if you hadn't seen the movie in a long time or you'd never seen it before, you almost have that aha moment where it's not related to the movie I know. other just, than the visual. And you're like, oh, my God, I know this. I know it stood out to me. So yeah. uh, so then they, they go into the minds of Moria. And I just got to say, the cinematography, it just looks great. Like At one point, the, the camera pulls back. You see the tunnels and the vastness of the mines. And, and I, I, want, like, I usually hate CGI. Like, I'm an old-school Gen X movie guy. We know that. I prefer traditional special effects. CGI usually looks like crap, you know, like the prequels. <clears throat> uh, but I will say this. Here in this movie, it works. And, yeah. and and for me, there's probably only been two times that I've really liked CGI in a movie. Jurassic Park and here in this movie. Now, I, I will say when the orcs come in to fight them, there was this big thing i don't know what it was called this big thing what's that a cave troll it was yeah whatever it was it was it looked kind of dumb and phony yeah you know and and also when they were all running to the bridge if you go back and watch that scene closely it looks really fake you know you can just tell it's cgi um so anyway i i mentioned before a little bit about dungeons and dragons dnd yes and i'm wondering like what what, i always thought but i mean was dnd based Solely on Tolkien, because not, not solely, but huge influences were drawn from this, uh, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy for sure. I mean, Tolkien's books gained a lot of popularity in the seventies, right before Gary Gygax came out with D and D. Yeah, so absolutely. a little D and D story for you. So my parents actually bought me the original set one year for Christmas. I want to say it came in a red or a blue box. Yeah. Yeah, the original box was red, and then the yeah. second one was blue. So maybe it was a red one. I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, I think. It was definitely just before I discovered my p- But um, <laughs> D&D gets a bad rap, man. I, I, I mean, the thing is, like, I enjoyed the rules and stuff, you know, like reading everything. I even got the monster manual. And I remember when I was down to visit you last time, I found your copy of the monster manual on the shelf. And totally nostalgic for me. Yeah, the, my, the original one from like 1970. Yeah, like with the blue cover and all the, the, the monsters on the front, on the hill. But the thing was for me, D&D, like I grew up in a small town and, and no one else in town was into it. And, and I also I discovered 
Yes, around that time. So I, I just I never really got into D and D, but like I know like you're really really good at. It. You've written modules. You you've you've led a set of tables at Fan Expo in Toronto, and I'll be honest with you, I thought with the advent of video games, especially when the internet came along, I thought role playing games like D and D would die, but they didn't. Right? No, they they've become more popular in the last five or ten years, largely because people are looking for reasons to get together socially to have face-to-face interactions. I mean, obviously, in the world we live in today, that's not happening so much. But the games are happening online, which is not as good. But the idea was that people who play, who have been playing video games, sure, I mean, the, the video games offer an, an immersion that you're not going to get in any other kind of game. It's all there. And you can talk over headsets over the internet to have that interaction. But nothing beats being in person literally sitting next to or across the table from another person and sharing ideas. Like uh, when people ask me, they're like, Hey, you're in a dungeon dragons. Tell me about it. The, the way I always describe it is it's a shared storytelling experience. Y- you know, it's, it's like performing a play where we don't give you a script. We give you a character or you help us design your character. And then you have one person who's like the director of that play, the dungeon master, who describes the scene. And then it's up to all the players, all the actors at the table to to describe how the scene plays out. It's like an improv group. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are dice and there are miniatures and there are maps and all those things. And that just that just helps facilitate a little bit of order when it comes to uh, a scene where maybe there is uh, interaction with a monster. You come across a dragon. Oh, my God. Well, we've got to slay this dragon. OK, well, you need to have some rules in place to say, like, well, if I'm going to stab him with my sword, does he die instantly or do I have to stab him 20 times? And so that's where some of the rules and the mechanics come into play. It, it, um, but otherwise, it's all about weaving an interesting story. And um, and yeah, and, and I mean, it's framed in this fantasy setting that draws largely from the Lord of the Rings. So when I say to people, when they're like, when I'm at a convention, for example, and people come over and they say, Oh, well, what's happening at this table? And I say, we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they're like, Oh, can we try it? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they sit down. And one of the first things I ask them is, have you ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies? And I mean, not so much now, but 10 years ago when I was doing this, a lot of people were like, yeah, of course I have. I'm like, okay, that that's a good framework to start with. And, uh, and that's been, that's been very helpful to help encourage people to, to try out this game. So, and that's why I think I was surprised earlier when you mentioned, because you, you know, you're into D and D, but you had never read Tolkien. I just, I found it was just, it was odd. It wasn't what I expected. I have now. I have yeah. Now, just right, to be clear in go. case you missed that earlier. Oh, of course. It took me a long time yeah. to get started. Um, so anyway, back to the movie for a minute. So they get to the, they're in the mines and they get to that stone bridge. Yes. And there's this big drop off cliff. Every time I saw Sean Astin in that scene, I couldn't help but think of the scene in The Goonies when Carrie Green's playing the Bones organ. Yeah. Remember, and she says, I can't remember if it's A sharp or B flat. Yeah. And Sean asks, is like, you better get it right or all B flat. You know? <laughs> yeah. Not to mention that A sharp and B flat are the same note, but um, but it's a similar scene because all the rocks are falling down in, in the cave. And then Aragorn grabs uh, Sean Aston and throws him. And then Gimli's like, no one tosses a dwarf. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I think his little line they put in. But the one thing about that scene, I'm looking at all these tall columns and like the huge tall stairs and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, how'd they ever make that? Like yeah. not the filmmakers, but like, like that's just CGI. But yeah. how'd they ever make that back in medieval times? I used to think that watching Game of Thrones too. 
Like there's yeah. no there's no cranes, there's no construction equipment. How do you make statues that are 500 feet in the air? You know. Yeah. But I guess at this point they're getting chased by this huge flaming demon. So I guess anything is possible demon from the depths. Yeah. So um, I remember a hearing where some of the studio execs wanted to kill off one of the hobbits, which is such a dumb idea because I like, I understand the need for Hollywood to follow their, their staple formula, you know, where everything goes to crap in the second act, but, but, but that's not in the book, no. you know, and besides Gandalf dies, you know, spoiler alert. So they lose a major character. So I just, yeah. I, I thought that was weird at this point, but um, so anyway, they, they get out of there and they, they meet lady of the wood, Kate Blanchett. You know, yep. was, was character. Uh, perfect casting again, you know, her. So then you, when I was thinking about this, the elves, you got Kate Blanchett and Liv Tyler, the Legolas guy, what's his name? Orlando, uh, Orlando, Orlando Bloom. Bloom and Hugo Weaving. The thing is though, for a race of people, the elves that are supposed to be in touch with nature and at one with the earth, they really look pale. You know, it's, it's, it's like they told the casting department, go out and hire the most jaundiced looking actors possible, you know? I don't know, I just, I thought it was weird that these elves I, are... I think, I think the intent, and I can't remember if this is described in the books, mm-hmm. is that it's almost like they're supposed to have, like, a, a radiant light that glows within them. And I know there are certainly some effects where that is apparent, and I think I think that's the idea, is that this this light, this purity, the elves are, are you know, uh, there's more... more pure and pristine race than the dirty old humans or the, the mm-hmm. messy smelly old dwarves or whatever it might be so that's why they always look like they're they're white or they're pale it's this this inner essence that's that's trying to to break out of them kind yeah of they're sure I, I, I think i gotta think that's described in the book that way mm-hmm. because the, in the movie they constantly sort of use that that uh, idea or maybe it's just he you know again peter jackson's like the humans and the elves from a distance are going to look pretty similar how do we differentiate it's like well i mean the pointy ears are nice but if the guy's got long hair you may not notice that so let's make the elves definitely more like almost like geisha makeup where they've got the white white makeup over their faces to really emphasize this pale look this 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 radiance it's a good point because there was one uh, shot of kate blanchett i remember where it was like this blue kind of filter and then, like, the, the, she had a spotlight on her, so I think you might be onto something. Kate um, Blanchett has a great line at this point because she says, "Even the smallest person can change the course of the world." Yeah. And this struck with me because this line proves to me that all great stories have similarities. Of course, you know, they do. the archetypes are always the same, right? If you think of what Lucas did with the original Star Wars trilogy, you got Luke is this lonely farm boy, and he ends up discovering that. All the power of the universe resides within himself. Yeah. You know, like it's just the archetypes are always the same in these classic stories, right? Yes. Well, again, it, we've, I've used the term epic. Mm-hmm. In an epic story, this is always the the, the way the story tells. It's the, the uh, you know, the, the, the lowliest individual at the beginning who doesn't seem special in any way, shape or form ultimately becomes the hero of the story and learns a lesson along the way. And so Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, like they all follow that same idea where it's this this unsuspecting uh, person who doesn't necessarily think that they are important or or have the power to, to change. Or maybe even in some cases they don't want to be anything special. They don't seek power. They have power thrust upon them and they they change the world one way or the other. Hmm, there you go. Uh, the final scene I want to just touch base on when they're fighting the orcs. 
Yep. I thought it was cool. Legolas stabs one of them with an arrow and then he pulls it out and puts it right in a bow and shoots another one. I thought that was pretty yeah. cool. That was pretty. And then when Boromir gets hit with an arrow and then two and then a third arrow, I, I was like, it's just like in Jaws. Yeah. He, he can't stay up with three on him. Not with three, he can't. You know, I was thinking that. Um, and then Elijah Wood has to decide what to do. So the camera zooms right into his face. And I was thinking, his eyes, like, are they real? They, they kind of looked fake. They look like those contact lenses where they're with a fake eye color or something. I don't know. I, well, I think, I think over the course of the next two movies, for sure. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier, his character gets stabbed by the Wraith. And he's wounded. And then that that's a big plot point in sort of the first the, the end of the first act. And then through the course of the movie, the the weight of the ring, the the metaphorical and the physical weight of the ring, the the evil corruption and the the festering wound all start to draw his life essence. He, you see him getting paler and paler and sicker and sicker and becoming more like those wraiths that chased them at the beginning. So I think through the course of this movie, you start to see those subtle changes. And I think that's like you described. You, he, I, I think you're right. I think he's got contacts in to sort mm. of represent like he's starting very slowly to undergo this transformation, which in the moment you may not realize. And in the moment, the character probably doesn't realize. But as you watch the second movie, especially as you watch the third movie, he looks very, very sick. He looks very, very pale and very gaunt and very uh, fatigued and, and exhausted and and so all of these these subtle ways that movie ma- makeup and movie magic can be done to to help demonstrate that and I think it starts with a little thing like you said with the contact lenses. Mm-hmm. And then Sam goes after Frodo because Frodo yeah. goes off on his own. He's gonna leave, and Sam almost drowns, and then he gets pulled into the boat. The music and that scene was the same as Titanic. It's the, the this pan flute music. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And yeah, then the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the music, I, I, the musical score for these, this for this movie and for this trilogy was great. It was, it's that sort of Celtic inspired pipe style music, um, and it's fitting. Again, you think of somewhere green, you think of Ireland, and you think of that the Celtic origin. Even though it was shot in New Zealand, mm-hmm. most people, you know, you you subconsciously associate certain things together. And I think it was brilliant for Peter Jackson to sort of lean on that. You look at Star Wars again, keep talking back to Star Wars mm-hmm. where they, you know, they opted to go with the John Williams classical score. Imagine if they had gone with a contemporary 1970s style music, the movie Disco. would hold up. It would be very, <laughs> exactly. it might've been good. It might've worked in the moment, but it doesn't grant that staying power. And I think Jackson was very conscious to realize we need a certain kind of music to represent certain things in this movie that are are timeless and that are representative of the movie and not the moment. And so I think that it was a, a, a brilliant choice and it certainly has helped this movie stand the test of time. Yeah, and then funny enough, then the, the movie just kind of ends. And, I, and now that I think back to it, when I went to see this in the movie theater, I remember... I was with a girl because she said, that's it? That's the end of the movie? Maybe, actually, maybe I was on a date on this movie. That's why I don't remember anything that happened. <laughs> maybe that was it. Who knows? Um, so what would you give it as a rating out of 10, this movie? Well, hang on. Before we do that, mm-hmm. I want to just circle back to a couple of things real quick. Sure. So uh, I want to point out that this movie, like so many movies, contains mm-hmm. at least one of my top five movie pet peeves. Oh, what is it? The hats. So there's a point where they are trying to go over the mountain before they decide, no, we got to go back through the mines of Moria and there's all the snow happening. Nobody's wearing a hat. Come on. I know that Legolas is an elf. I don't need to see his pointy ears. Put a damn hat on him. Oh 
my God. I, I don't know why this frustrates me so much, but it does. And I get that they maybe don't have Canadian style toques in Middle Earth, but come on. It's still cold. It's yeah. cold outside. It's Cover snowing. Yourself up. It's Good snowing. Point. It's a blizzard. They've got cloaks on. They have obviously <laughs> taken steps to keep warm. They're buried Put in snow. A damn hat. Oh my God. It bugs me so Good much. Good point. Yeah. All right. The other thing I want to bring up, and, and this is something that I didn't notice. I didn't consciously notice until uh, I watched some of the special features the very first time through. And then it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it, but it's a good thing. Peter Jackson was exceptionally good at realizing that the movie is all about a quest. It's about going from point A to point B at its most simple description of what this story is about. It's the Hobbit takes the magic ring from point A to point B in an attempt to destroy the magic ring and restore order to the world. Okay. That's that's the movie summed up in a nutshell. Right. When you're when you've got a story that in this case of these movies runs 10, 11, 12 hours, you need to be consistent with certain details. And he was very conscious and very deliberate that at every point in this movie, when the characters are traveling, they travel from left to right. Always, always, always travel from left to right across your screen to remind you they are on this long consistent journey always 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 when the hobbits are moving forward in the quest they go from left to right across the screen now that i mentioned that if you weren't already aware of it you will not unsee this and i have watched these movies again after i learned that and like thinking well this can't be right there's got to be a few scenes no he was meticulous about ensuring that when they travel they always travel left to right across your screen and it was such a big deal for him in these movies that I have now been way more conscious of this kind of thing as I've watched newer movies made. And you want to talk about a separating the men from the boys? This is a real little detail that when you don't do it right and you're watching for it, it can be very disruptive. And uh, he, he did it perfectly. So the next time you're watching this movie or any of the rest of these movies... Pay very close attention. They are always moving left to right across the screen as the quest proceeds. Does it always align with the map? Because the one thing when I read this book as a, as a, as a younger person, I would always look to the map. I'd always like flip back to the map and like see where they are and where they're going and would just put things in perspective for me. And for the most part on the map, they're moving from left to right. Now in the two towers, Mary and Pippin are moving from right to left because they're going back over into Gondor, you know, at the, the base of the, the forest with the ends. So I'm just wondering if, if that happens in that movie. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't remember. I, know I haven't seen that one, so I wonder. Yeah, and specifically the characters tied to the main quest, like mm-hmm. with whoever's got the with the one ring and is moving. Always, always, always left, right. Although near the end of this movie, uh, I think it's after they come out of the mines of Moria and they have to like they say, "Oh, hey, they, they've just lost their friend. Give them a minute to rest." And he's like, "No, no, no. It's gonna be nightfall soon. We gotta get moving." They're sort of wandering, like the, the the path down the hill is sort of winding. So mm-hmm. although they do take a few steps to the left, it's clear that the ultimate path is more to the right. So it's like step, step left, and then like 10 steps to the right, then step, step left, and 10 steps to the right as it's a meandering path. That was the only sort of exception to this rule that I noticed this time through. But yeah, yeah. It, it's, it seems like such a little detail. You're like, oh, come on. That's just mm-hmm. some guy being anal retentive. It's like... It's an important part, important choice he made as the movie maker to do it that way. And once you realize that, you you can really get a sense of appreciation for it. Hmm, there you go. Uh, so do you want to give it a rating out okay. of 10? 
what, so what you give I'm going to give this two ratings. So okay. on its face, as as just a general movie, mm-hmm. I think I got to give it between an eight and eight and a half just for its legacy, for what it is, for what it represents. It's the first of it sets up these three movies. It it changed the way that people mm-hmm. perceive the the quality that a fantasy story can have. Um, I mean, we're still waiting for an official Dungeons and Dragons movie that's anywhere near this caliber, and it might be another 10 years before we get something like that. But this one is an important staple. Someone said to me once, they said, when we grew up, we had three movies. We had Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And everything about our lives focused around these three movies as we were young people growing up. That would be me. (laughs) And for me too. And for his kids, it was Lord of the Rings. He goes, they have the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and Return of the King. That's the trilogy for my kids. And it was for a long time. And he's like, these are the movies that they want to go back and watch over and over again. These are the heroes they talk about. These are the, they learn uh, uh, about storytelling. And when they play with each other, they lean on the, the the stories and the tales of good versus evil from this trilogy. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, parallel that, it, you know, how important the, these movies, these Lord of the Rings movies were to a certain generation of, of young people and how influential they were. So from all of that, I, I think I got to lean towards an eight and a half. But upon this viewing, for me personally, I only felt like it was a seven. I liked it, but I didn't feel it lived up to that eight and a half that I really hoped it would. Um, But it did motivate me to now want to go back and watch the next two movies, which I also hold in very high regard. And I do recall the last time I watched the trilogy, it was the same thing. It was like the first movie was good and the second movie was better and the third movie was fantastic. So I am very much looking forward to watching the next two and I would never have watched them out of sequence. So yeah, for this time through, I'm only going to give it a seven, but I think it's it really long-term, it's an eight and a half. For the first time, maybe ever, when you nominate a movie, I'm going to rate it higher than what you rated it. I'm going to give this a nine out of wow. 10. Yeah. I thought it was oh, fantastic. It's very, very good. And I think, again, I think it's that if I'd never seen it before, I think I would have given this a nine or a nine and a half because it's on, it's, it's an epic. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's everything you want out of a fantastic piece of entertainment. But for me, I I had these very, very, very high expectations. And I was just a little disappointed that they didn't meet them this time around. Mm -hmm. As a piece of filmmaking, I thought it was great. So, oh, and yeah, again, Long term, if I had to put this in writing, eight and a half out of ten all day long. Yeah. Okay. On that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right. So there's there's no way that I'm doing Lord of the Rings trivia with you tonight. <laughs> you would just smash it, you know. Well, and there's no way I'm doing medieval fantasy movies with you. And yeah. along those lines, I'm not doing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it's just a waste of time. You just know all the answers. So I decided what I'm going to do tonight. Is I'm going to give you some movie trivia based on movie trilogies. Okay. okay. Here we go. I'm going to start we've with an easy a, one. We've mentioned a few trilogies already yeah. tonight, so okay. Easy one to start with. What's the worst movie trilogy of all time? The Star Wars prequels. Oh! <laughs> right, right off the bat. That was an easy one. Okay. So George Lucas, responsible for the worst trilogy of all time. But he's also responsible for the best trilogy of all time, the original Star Wars trilogy. Yes, now, he is. although he produced all three of the original films, he only directed the first one. Right. Derek, can you name all three directors of the original Star Wars trilogy? No, I can name George Lucas for the first one and Kirshner for the second one, and I have no idea who directed the third one. 
know he wanted Spielberg, but because of the guild and all that jazz, he couldn't. I have no idea who directed Jedi. Richard Marquand. Sure. Richard Marquand directed Return of the Jedi. Sorry, okay. Mr. Marquand, that I don't know that, given the fact that I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. That's right. He's dead. Oh, well, R.I.P. <laughs> what actor won the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1972's The Godfather? Uh, sorry, in the first Godfather movie? That's correct. That the would first. have been Marlon Brando. That was correct. Yes, that, that was, was the one where he didn't appear, right? He sent uh, a Native American woman to yes. make a statement. Yeah, he did not accept the award. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Sashin Little Feather, I think, was Little her Feather, name. Right? Yeah, I totally remember, remember that stuff. Okay, the Naked Gun trilogy, Derek, ran yes. from 1988 to 1994 and featured yep. the misadventures of Lieutenant Frank Drebin. Yep. Now, what was the name of the short-lived 1982 TV series that the Naked Gun trilogy was based on? Was the from the files of Police Squad? Yes, it was the Police Squad. You are correct. Okay, beginning in 1992, Robert Rodriguez directed a trilogy of films about a traveling Mexican musician who falls into a plot of revenge. Yeah. What was yes. the name of the first film in the trilogy? Easy part. El, um. Oh, it was El Mariachi, and then it became Desperado. Well, very good. Yeah, I only asked for the first movie. El Mariachi is correct. Desperado was the second one in 95. Do you know the, the third movie in the yeah, trilogy? it was uh, Once Upon a Time in America, wasn't it? Once Upon a Time in Mexico? Once Upon a Time in something. Once Upon a Time in Mexico from Mexico. 2003. Very good. Sense. All right. You didn't have Johnny Depp in it, the third one? The third one did, yes. They were yeah, all different. I don't, the second I don't one. I never saw that third one, but I remember no. when it came out, on, uh, came out on video. I think it might have been when I was at the video store, actually. Yeah, anyway. The second one was Antonio Banderas. Yeah, yeah. It was all great. Right. Michael J. Fox brought Marty McFly to life yep. in the Back to the Future trilogy, obviously. However, Michael J. Fox was not the original actor that was cast to play the role. Derek, can you name the actor that was originally cast and then fired after the filming started because his performance was not up to par? Yeah, it was uh, Eric Stoltz. Very good. Very good. Congratulations. You're doing very well. I should have just I, stuck... I know, I know a lot of trivia about the Back to the Futures movie. It yeah. was unlikely you were going to stump me on that one. I think I just should have stuck to D&D trivia for this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so although it's not technically a trilogy, you know, by strict definition, Kevin Smith came out with three films in the 90s known to fans as the Jersey Trilogy. Can yep. you name the three films? Yep. It was Clerks, Mallrats... Oh crap! What was the third one after Mallrats? Uh, was it uh, Jay? And it was no, it wasn't. Was it Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, or was it Dogma? It was, or was it? Oh no, Chasing Amy. Chasing Amy is correct. Very. It good. has that fantastic scene at the beginning in the comic yeah. convention, in the the comic convention, mm-hmm. where they're talking about Star Wars. Oh my God, that has got to be the funniest Kevin Smith piece ever. If you're a Star Wars fan and you haven't seen it, go online. As soon as you're done listening to this podcast, look up Chasing Amy, comic book panel where they talk about Star Wars. It is hilarious. I don't know. I really liked in Clerks when uh, when uh, Randall was talking about the stormtroopers working on the Death Star. And yeah. So that was pretty funny, That's too. You. Independent contractors. Yeah. Okay. So in the Austin Powers trilogy, the bad guy, obviously, is Dr. Evil. The character is based on Donald Pleasance's character from the 1967 James Bond film, You Only Live Twice. Derek, what was the name of James Bond's arch nemesis who inspired Dr. Evil? Uh, It was Blofeld. I can't remember his first name. 
Blofeld is correct. Very good. All right. What three films make up what is known as the Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy? I, I, I have no, n- none of what you just said is familiar to me. I'm going to say chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. It's actually, the trilogy is Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Okay. I've seen all those movies. I didn't yeah. realize that they had a classification. Yeah, they called it the Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy for some reason. All right. right. I'm going to end with, with another tough one. This romantic movie trilogy featured the relationship between Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Oh yeah. Can you name yeah, yeah. can you name all three movies in no. the trilogy? <laughs> I, I it was uh Before Sunrise. Correct. Um that, that, was the, that was the first one, yep. right? You got it. 95. Um I, I don't I, I haven't seen any of them, but I'm aware of all of them. Before Sunrise, was it after sunset? No, no. The, the no, first word was, is the right one. The first word is the right one. After after midnight, maybe no, 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 no. no after sorry. dawn, I don't know. No, Honestly, it was Chris, before I don't sunrise in ninety five. Yeah. Before sunset in two thousand and four, and before midnight in two thousand and thirteen. Yeah, I knew I knew there was a commonality in the titles. Yeah. I I couldn't remember. I was thinking more like that stupid sh- sparkly vampire movie where it was like the dawn and then the new the new moon and then the eclipse where they were all sort of like phases twilight. Yeah, twilight. That was the twilight. Twilight. Yes. Yeah. If uh, eclipse, like they were all phases of the moon, I was thinking of that. So, I was going to even uh, ask you about things like uh, George A. Romero's trilogy, you know, with the, oh, the, the dead and the stuff. Dawn I think you didn't really like those ones. Again, I, I don't really know those that well. I know of them, but oh, so good, so good, especially the original. Okay, so yeah, you did pretty good on that. Like I say, I'm I'm glad I st- stayed away from the D and D stuff and uh, the fantasy movie stuff. You would have just killed it. But anyway, so next week we're going to come back with a, a top five list. Right, so we'll yep. we'll figure out a topic for that, and we'll come back. And if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, like you can find Derek at Amaron underscore DM, and you'll find me at C McBrien. And popgojuworld.com is our website for all of our contact information. Shoot us an email; we'll get back to you. And until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 